listeners, you're listening to Nightmare Junkhead. Nightmare Junkhead! With Genius McGee and Greg D. I'm Gigi Saul Guerrero from Lucha Gore Productions. Ah! Gore is love, baby. Weaving in and out of your consciousness like a bad dream you can't wake from, this is the Nightmare Junkhead Podcast, a horror podcast that is the most overwhelmingly feminine presence you will ever know. My name is Greg D. I'm Genius McGee. And on today's episode, we are oiling up our saws and paying tribute to a fallen master as we talk and honor the work of one Toby Hooper. But before we get into that gang, let me remind you we are part of the phenomenally frightening Phantom Podcast Network. Phantom. And you can find all of our past episodes along with a host of other horrific horror podcasts at downrightcreepy.com. Or if you're like me and you like to listen to us on the go, simply search for Nightmare Junkhead in your iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud app. Hit subscribe. And when we drop our latest episode, it will download directly to your listening device of choice. All up in your saw hole. I was wondering where you were going with that, but it's obvious and it works really well. Yep. Uh, so if you are here in the Kansas City area, uh, this episode will be released on September 8th. And on September 8th, uh, I want to make sure we're shouting out, if you are in the Kansas City area, mm-hmm. that at Screenland Armor is the premiere of the 4K restoration of Suspiria. Which, which I, you got to make sure, if you're in the area, make sure to check it out, because I believe, Absolutely. I know I'll be there representing kind of disturbingly, and it's like, well, where is Genius going to be? Yeah, I'm actually going to be hosting The Room that night. Oh, oh, oh. Hi, oh hi. Oh, hi, Danny. So if you're in the Kansas City area, Cult Fridays over at Screenland, uh, the Screenland Tapcade mm-hmm. is every Friday. It, you get the first Friday, they do a rotation of Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yep. The second is The Room. And we actually have rotating hosts. Uh-huh. Uh, the last <laughs> month I actually hosted. And, the, and now it's my turn in The Room. And then, Literally. <laughs> <laughs> you want to be a star, don't you? It's really interesting. It's bullshit. That's <laughs> not. And then actually then on the uh, third Fridays then, Kansas City Horror Club takes over. Yep. And then. These um, have been so much fun. It's they've been, been ridiculously fun. Like what have you what have you guys screened so far with that? So we've screened so far. First one was Event Horizon. Mm-hmm. Then we've shown. High tension. Then we shown the faculty. This month we're showing Slither. So yes. really good movies. September fifteenth, mm-hmm. and uh, so yeah, third Friday every month, Kansas City Horror Club. So yeah, Slither, you guys, mm-hmm. come on, see what your Guardians of the yeah, Galaxy right? came from. <laughs> see where your gun was loaded at. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> and then the fourth Fridays they have it's um uh, it's basically like staff choice. Mm-hmm. So they've there's some really cool stuff going along. Oh, we want to yeah. make sure that uh, Screenland Tapcade, Screenland Armor. They've shown um, some really neat stuff there. So. Yeah. And so make sure then on September 8th, you see Suspiria. And then on September 10th, mm-hmm. there's a free screening of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre at the Screenland Armor. The Saw's family. The Saw's family. And mm-hmm. so you'll definitely see a podcast, friend of the podcast, Jill Gavargazi in there, mm-hmm. Adam Roberts, uh, just the people that were definitely there in honor and remembrance of the man who's brought us together again yeah. you know and it's unfortunate that we have to put together these kinds of episodes because yeah. we recently recorded a romero one i mean recently recorded a romero one. this was a really a hard one-two gut punch to the horror community mm-hmm. in terms of the again when you a loss of any kind of life is tragic but you know the particular people that we're losing right now our icons are leaving us they are legitimate icons yeah. these yeah. are the people that are on the mount rushmore of horror mm-hmm. for a lot of for a lot of these people who have passed away these are what made them fall in love with horror in the first place you know um for me and creep show you know for a lot of people like i know for jill and texas chainsaw you know just it, it's this was a very it makes you wonder who's next it's like somebody please check us on stephen king and john carpenter you yeah, know? yeah cronenberg <laughs> right? all under lock because there are those 70s and 80s filmmakers the auteur ones mm-hmm. that are as we know kind of hitting in the twilight of their years yeah. so it's very unfortunate when this happens it's very sudden it hits us where it hurts but one of the beauties and one of the reasons we can put together these retrospectives is they've left a huge body of work. Exactly, and we can celebrate that work and enjoy that work, and you know they'll always let their stamp on it. So, and that's one of the most important things is that even though he is no longer here, 
physical mm-hmm. will always be in the cellular and the spiritual. And it, I know that's cheesy. But at the same time, yeah, you know, your art lives forever after long after you're gone. So no matter what you're going to do, make sure you have your name. You on do it well. Yeah. And so I want to kind of get into before we before we get into our first yes. initial uh, Hooper experience. I think it's really interesting that he got his initial start as a college professor, much like two years ago when we did our Craven retrospective, Wes Craven also was a college professor before he transitioned into... Who said horror movies aren't educational? Damn right, you know? <laughs> before he was corrupting the you know the right? masses and film, he was corrupting everyone education-wise. It, it makes sense. I've learned a lot in horror movies, you know? They teach a lot. Well, and it's interesting just in terms of the upbringing and how much of their own personality they bring in everything. But, you know, Toby Hooper is definitely a Southern boy. Mm-hmm. And you get a lot of... Just in terms of the overall aesthetics with Toby Hooper films, I definitely think he has a particular style yeah. that you can find in a lot of his films and there's some outliers out there mm-hmm. that maybe don't coalesce into the rest of them but for the most part there's a lot of repeating themes I mean you can definitely we we, we went back and we've looked at some stuff that we've seen and seen other stuff recently and there's definitely some connective tissue oh absolutely and I just really think one of the things that I really enjoy about him just kind of my little things here is how he really creates a sense of how worlds clash into each other mm-hmm. for, for basically um, you think about in the Texas Mass you've got the young the, the slaughter being led to the the, 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 the cattle to the slaughter. slaughter exactly with uh eaten alive the same aspect uh the fun house you get the carnivals versus the normies and so to speak yeah and what happens when you you basically put the you, two together and the, the the seedy underbelly of reality space vampires in britain um <laughs> craig t nelson and james karen's house you know just like two worlds that should not go together they somehow magically and they make it make it works Uh, and I really think also as a lot of his films just you do feel dirty you do you do especially his early work yeah you feel trapped too I mean that was that was the definite theme in his earlier work the claustrophobic claustrophobic the atmospheric thing yeah and it's and it's weird to see you there's still see a lot of those are the same themes but then they shift and he's and you see more of a new theme come out in some of his later work but yet still with the same theme motif and I think an interesting thing as well is with a lot of his characters that are the antagonists the villains of the pieces mm-hmm. is for there's even if it's just a small bit there's a little bit I think that Toby Hooper sympathizes with a lot of them yeah like he'll give him some maybe a brief moment of pathos that even though like Leatherface is this moral monster it, he does well with giving you a peek into the understanding of the monster mm-hmm. so to speak i mean in all of this i mean for uh, let's say take poltergeist let's take a controversial yeah one. uh we know why the house was being haunted we kind of understood like yeah they kind of fucked they up they did mess up on that yeah. one yeah uh let's look at uh let's look at life force you know it's like yeah, we kind of fucked up on that one, too, you know? Hey, what's this? What does this do? Yeah. yeah. And I think the other thing he does really well is build his his world with crazy, eclectic side characters. Absolutely. And from, the aesthetics are just crazy as and well. And from Texas Massacre all the way up to, like, the Mangler. Just mm-hmm. into, just, there were always these really weird... It gave it a Hooper feel. Yeah. So that being said, do you remember your kind of your entryway into the world of Hooper? <laughs> so we kind of had a little off-the-mic uh, off discussion. Off-the-mic discussion. Discussion, and I would have been either absolutely sure, just like like we were talking about, it would have been Poltergeist or Texas Chainsaw. Those would have been my two, and I would have until today. I would have been absolutely one hundred percent sure of those two, but now, not so much. Until you went to the IMDb, and we were basically kind of looking at his timeline, mm-hmm. the stuff, and we're looking for the most part of the stuff he directed, right? That he had the direct influence on, mm-hmm. and so I also agree that there's like there's a ninety nine point nine percent chance that my first exposure was Poltergeist, yeah. but for some reason I think there's like this point zero one percent chance <laughs> that just in terms of what I watched when I watched the freedom I had, I had HBO, I had Cinemax and shit. It could have been life force in some weird way, but we both realize no, it's that not might it. not even be it. Yeah, what is it there, genius? A little video that was on heavy rotation back in the day on by, a little channel on MTV. Uh huh. By a certain um, <laughs> you can't see it, but we're sneering or trying to do our best little Billy Idol sneer. I'm dancing with myself. <laughs> Yeah, could you, yeah, thank God this isn't a, a visual podcast. Right. 
sinned with myself. And if you think about that video, when he starts like electrocuting himself and shit, like uh-huh. there's some really weird, bizarre elements to that video that when you look in retrospect, you go, yeah, of course that's Hooper. Texas Chainsaw Idol. Right? <laughs> well, and that's the thing. And Get that bitch! <laughs> so realize, yeah, our first exposure undoubtedly would have been Billy Idol. Billy Idol, yeah. But then ultimately I think was probably Poltergeist. <laughs> so what we thought we would t- go ahead and we'd kind of go through just chronologically our experience with the films because beyond Life Force, I don't think we've actually devoted any particular episode to any one of his films. Right. And so this is, for the most part, our first chance to talk a lot about these films on mm-hmm. the podcast, which is good. So in terms of kind of where he started from, and in all honesty, the film that truly connects to yeah. Toby Hooper to not only the horror world, but to the... But the world of cinema. Popular culture mm-hmm. in and of itself is 1974's... Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Which yeah. was not my first Hooper, and I won't lie, it took me a long time to get to the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. And the reason being, and I've got this pulled up here, but if any of you are familiar with this, the original VHS cover of this film oh, that, is pretty that was put out by media uh-huh. is truly terrifying. And this thing, I had my free reign of the VHS stores in Stanley, Kansas, because my formative years in like elementary and middle school, I rented whatever I wanted. Right. I could never rent <laughs> this movie based on this VHS cover. Also, it is by by Rex. We got a quote here by Rex Reed: "The most horrifying movie picture I've ever seen." Okay. Now, the only other quote I've heard from Rex Reed was on the box of Rawhead Rex, <laughs> and I was like terrified of that film as well based on that cover. So yeah, the, I I Rex was Reed is synonymous now with like horrifying, scary cover. just just the kind of stuff that just digs into just truly deep in your trauma. Yeah, no, it took me forever to get to that film because of that. It wasn't until I was in high school that I finally saw the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah, do you remember the first time you saw it? I was late to the game too. Um, for that one, I, but the only reason why I sought that one out, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, in the first place, was because of summer school. Interesting. Okay, so we talked about how really Toby Hooper and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the influence goes outside mm-hmm. of the horror genre, and that's a perfect example. Yeah, the fact that you were introduced to one of the most horrifying horror films. I mean, that is, it's notorious, right? right? Through a family-friendly, for the most part, exactly. summer comedy. S- pseudo boner jam by Carl like, Reiner. Shenanigans. Right, right, exactly. It's just so mind boggling. I remember watching them like, this is great. Where's this gore coming from? And then they're like, and let me tell you where this gore is coming from. And, and you I'm get like, a shot of ah, the actual film in summer school. Yeah. It, a la like a little 16 millimeter print. Mm-hmm, it definitely piqued my interest. So the next thing I went to go see is like, well, let's go see what this Texas Chainsaw Massacre is all about. And I was like, thank you, summer school. This is awesome. So do you so, remember your, your feelings the first time you saw it? I was like, holy shit, this is creepy. It was just the creepiest feeling. Like you said, I still to this day, I feel dirty after watching that movie. And now, especially after eating alive. Oh you know, God. just and those are just dirty movies. And I well, and you they are dirty, but I think they're also almost like beautif- beautiful beautifully dirty. dirty. Yeah. And that's what makes them so creepy because it's like just the lighting, the aesthetics, the It's shot like an art film. It is. And I think this is one of the films and I think just with Hooper's visual style, what I think what really is a unifying force that if you made all of his films silent films, I think because they're so visually alarmingly just arrest, they're stark with the mm-hmm. images, whether it's dull, whether it's, they're just, they're, they're so stark yeah. that they make the story work on its own. So I think almost all of his films would work great as like those background party movies <laughs> yeah. where you're like, what the, what the hell are we watching here? Because just with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, there's that one shot where um, I can't remember. It's not Sally. It's the girl with the red shorts uh-huh. when she's walking up to the house. It's it's beautifully shot. I mean, it looks like a painting. Mm-hmm. But then you realize everything that they went through for that film, and it's just and like you said, I mean, I remember the fir- the first time because I reverse engineered. I saw part two before I saw the first one. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I went from just the and we'll get to my thoughts on the but uh, right. you rever- and it's much the way the same way I saw Evil Dead two before I saw the first Evil uh-huh. Dead, and so you're going from these crazy Gonzo versions of these films to these stripped down dirty. I, I was disturbed by because it, it had such a reputation. Yeah, the VH box cover. I mean, I knew the film 
even without having seen the film, mm-hmm. you know, through uh, Terror in the Isles and shit like that. Exactly. But even by reputation, I knew it, but it still didn't really prepare me for the visceral just the 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 scene that still gets me is when he just comes out of nowhere and just boop, just pops that dude right in the head and the guy's just twitching and I'm like wow that was real I mean it just looks so it's just that's the good thing about the especially early hoopers it was just so gritty and dirty that it couldn't help but look real it, it just looked like you're watching 42nd street snuff you know and you're like wow screw faces of death this was truly uh, again a dare film if you mm-hmm. will when and, we watched and then the fact that it was like in 1974, three teenagers—the whole John Larroquette—and La- you, era, we were all familiar with John Larroquette thanks to Night, Night Court. Court. Yeah. And so all of a sudden, we're again, a reverse engineer like Dan Fairley—he's telling us that like this is this legit. is real. You will die after uh, you see this. They will come into your house and turn you into <laughs> head cheese. You know. And now, do you know the story behind the, how they got him to do the monologue on there? No. What they paid him with? What they paid him in pot. Really? Yeah. Fuck yeah. Hell yeah, Dan Dan Fielding, you rock. Well, and then what I what's interesting though is how the film opens with is just in terms of just the decrepity, just how everything is decaying. Uh-huh. How that film itself, like almost the heat itself is a character oh, yeah. in the movie. Oh yeah. How that just kind of fuels everything in terms of the madness and the chaos. How they talk about Texas. the, the sunspots <laughs> and the solar flares and shit, and how that's maybe introducing like just the chaos. Mm-hmm. But again, showing these not necessarily innocent teens. <laughs> so many raspberries in this film. That's the only gory part, really, of the film are the raspberries thrown out by Franklin there. But just kind of the innocence, also the fact that this came out in 74 and is definitely a direct response to the Vietnam War mm-hmm. in terms of these hippie era kids seeing some horrific shit. And, that, and again, just the, the imagery itself is so on the nose oh, yeah. in terms of showing them going by the slaughterhouse and shit. But it's still, it's such a response to that whole culture going on at the time. And then even on the smaller scale, the whole like almost real aspect, but the after you learn it is Ed Gein and all that stuff. And just the whole aesthetics of the house, the bone, the the, the, the filth and squalor. And this is kind of that true like rural horror yeah. where what happens if you go out beyond civilization mm-hmm. into the outskirts of the South, as you said, down yeah. in Texas. And again, Hooper being a Southern boy shot with authenticity exactly this is a truly southern film if you Mm -hmm. will but can you think of a more i mean just in terms of such a strongly directed feature film and i think this is a perfect example of just coming out of the gate swinging and nailing americana horror american horror absolutely well and think about in 74 this is way before michael myers Mm -hmm. jason Voorhees, freddy krueger he created an icon unknowingly yeah because this is the film again that permeated into the popular consciousness mm-hmm. this was the dare film this was the film that was notorious this was a video nasty and oh, absolutely what's interesting though is the reputation of the film when i went going in i thought i was in and again seeing the second one mm-hmm. before i saw the first one i was anticipating more of that but to my surprise of course and when i think the strongest thing of the film is the fact that there's very little gore to no gore mm-hmm Hardly any blood. Just I a lot think of there's hammering. a little bit of splatter when Franklin gets it, but beyond that, it's it's. But it's just so mean. It is. It's a mean well, movie. What's interesting? Also, what I really like is the fact that it's you're not necessarily shown the hook going into the back. It's all theater of the mind. Yes, and that's the really cool aspect of it. Because like, no matter what you see on the screen, if it, no matter, it's not going to beat what's playing in your head. I mean. And the more fucked up you are, the more fucked up it is. And especially the visuals <laughs> that Toby Hooper's employing anyway. Mm-hmm. It almost feels a little manipulative because, as you said, the film does feel so real that the first time I saw it, I mean, it, it was legit unnerved. Like, how did this get made? How did someone allow this to get made? It, was, it felt this was a I felt um, almost rebellious watching it the first time. And I'm like probably a sophomore in high school. And I'm, I, I may I may have had a mullet, but I was not rebellious, you know. And so right. watching that was almost like a form of rebellion because I, I just I felt like naughty watching it. Yeah. And I had felt like I'd finally conquered that VHS cover. <laughs> I've defeated the dragon that is Leatherface. And he's he's a vicious dragon, man, let yeah. me tell you what. So, yeah, no, I've just, in terms, and again, we can't necessarily say anything about this film that already hasn't been said. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are think pieces based on it. Um, it is just probably one of the strongest opening horror de- directorial debuts that I can imagine. But I'll tell you what, for pure aesthetics and dread, and after everything I've known about Texas Chainsaw, I think the next movie he did 
should also have a lot of acclimates because this movie I saw Texas Chainsaw when I was younger and it did creep me out and it did scare me and it did like disturb me but as an adult eaten alive almost did the same response to me as it did when I was watching Texas Chainsaw for the first time. So yeah, a few years later we go from Texas Chainsaw Massacre to Eaten Alive and mm-hmm. so we actually got a chance to kind of cover this one extensively uh, through our Into the Mouth of March Madness tournament. So yeah. definitely check out our 1977 episodes because that particular film went really far in the tournament. Yeah, it did. And I think ultimately it was probably the most Rip- 1977 was a very interesting bracket with the movies. Yeah. Especially in terms of re-watching them for the you know I had not seen that and I maybe even hadn't seen it all the way through mm-hmm. so rewatching that was such a kind of a, a revelatory experience because as you said it's such a it's kind of a continuation on the aesthetics of what he established yeah but, but also he amps it up so much in this in in eating alive I mean the the aesthetics are worse. The, the in Texas Chainsaw, it's beautifully shot. Right. This one, it's dirty shot. It is. Just, he's going for filthy. You want to feel icky. It's set in a swamp, so you're already sticky. You're all, and then just the madness ensues. And well, whew. and I mean, a lot of the the credit has to be given to Neville Brand. Oh my gosh! Because. <laughs> He is so genuinely unhinged. Whatever train car they found him in, then they need to erect a statue. And he, because he doesn't seem like he's acting, like he seems real. Yeah. He seems like some cat they did pull aside. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, don't mind these cameras. Just do your thing. Okay, Robert, get in here. You know, please make sure that's a fake scythe. Yeah. Um, because he's going to be running around acting really crazy with it. So we got to make sure props, props, do we, are we okay? Well, ask the major? No, 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 thank you. <laughs> it's such an interesting film because it's built on the reputation of the crocodile, mm-hmm. which is really an afterthought in the film. Right. And it ultimately comes down. Well, interestingly enough, though, the character himself, isn't he a Vietnam vet? Mm-hmm. So, again, you have another interesting take in terms of the PTSD involved with these guys that are trying to find their way back into society. Yep. Which, again, you these guys in the, the 70s, Craven, Romero, Hooper, they were very outspoken. I'm not going to say they were a true activists. No. But there were some messages going on in their films. They definitely had something to say, and they said it with the medium of their what they had, and they and they did it, and they said it, and something so powerful enough like that, where we're still talking about the what they've said, and we're still interpreting like, yep, 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 definitely, and it's still, the problems they're addressing, still some of them are Exist. going on today to this day. I mean... It's crazy. No, it is. And I, what's good, though, with this particular film is Arrow gave it a great Blu-ray release, and I think more people are finding it. It was mm-hmm. out on Shudder. No, I don't think it's out. No, it was out on Shudder. It was on Shudder. It's, it's very claustrophobic. Just it's Oh, my God. More there so are... than more so to me. To me, a lot of the accolades that we talked about, Texas Chainsaw, the aesthetics, the claustrophobia, that's just fear, is heightened also by in... Um, Eating Alive. And Kylie Richards, who plays the little girl, she's one of the real housewives... She is in some genuine peril in that film mm-hmm. that made me, when I rewatch it, I, again, I think you even said you got the heebie-jeebies. Yeah, I, I, I was like, I was curled up in a ball on my couch, just like freaking out. And I said it before and I'll say it again. I think for the first couple of movies, his main um, muse was to torture Marilyn Burns. Oh my God. I just think he just liked to torture the shit out of her. Well, I you know I, I'm definitely we don't condone that by any means. No, uh, but actors and actresses, yeah, their there muses, needs, their muses. There needs to be some consent there in right. terms of how that <laughs> works there. But no doubt, because yeah, it just in terms of again a one-two punch there, it's pretty darn impressive. Mm-hmm. And again, just with his passing, I think more people will find out, will seek out the films that yeah. kind of fell between the cracks. And this is definitely one that they'll discover. Oh yeah, and it's interesting to see people react to it. So this is I, I would love to see this in a theater with some folks because mm-hmm. his films do definitely. Um, elicit a response and thinking of uh, his next big one that we see here and one that I strongly react to me too to this day this is one that he actually started working with uh, as a collaborator with Stephen King's work Mm -hmm. and this particular film I I read the little the the novel before I saw the film we are of course talking about 1979's Salem's Lot Blay (laughs) oh wait I should go Oh no! Don't do that! Don't do that! See, that's not allowed in these parts. There, there are. 
ways that movies and certain scenes just basically worm their way into, into your, your brain. brain. Exactly. And no matter how old you are. It's still terrifying. No matter how rationally you understand the world works. <laughs> there are times <laughs> where Most Mother definitely. Nature conspires against you. <laughs> and just things remind you of certain things in this particular film. And I think there are people that grew up with this film know exactly the scene we're talking about. Oh, yeah. But goddamn you, Toby Hooper. <laughs> so fucking terrifying. And this, uh, the book itself is a good scary book. And right. this is good old early Stephen King. And I will and say, it's a great old vampire story. But there's this one scene in this movie that particular, like you said, will haunt my dreams and nightmares. And it is terrifying. Uh, especially no matter what it always that I think that scene encapsulates one of a lot of people's fears either you're afraid of the dark it's got it whether you're afraid of creepy kids it's got it whether you're afraid of vampires it's got it whether you're afraid of the unknown it's got it whether you're afraid of weird noises on your window it's got it but god damn that's not a scary scene holy shit the way it's shot the Mm -hmm. way it's presented the makeup that's done. And again, this is a made-for-TV film. Keep yeah. in mind that. So we all right. experienced it, gathered around with the family. Unedited and uncensored. Because made-for-TV <laughs> and PG back in the day, kids. Yeah. it was, de- And we're going to get to a PG film, speaking of, in the Hooper Repertee mm-hmm. that messed up a lot of kids. It, it, this, this, ain't a, this ain't a Disney PG. This ain't Nickelodeon PG. No, this it is, is not. It, it's it's truly a, it's a good, terrifying little film. It's one that I think is kind of underrated and I think underseen just because of the fact that it was a TV film and it's old and people are like ah oh, TV and old no but and when it's on TV it's going to be a little bit oddly paced especially if you're watching it as a movie mm-hmm, so I, the commercial breaks and all that so stuff. I think it has an unfair rap going against it um, I think that would be an interesting one to remake but I don't necessarily think it needs to be remade it works great as a novel works great as a TV movie there's other more there's other vampire things that you could explore yeah but yeah. also, you know what? It even the um, the score of it got remi- uh, put out. I think it was either Mondo or Waxwork put that out. I mean, Salem's Lot is. It means it's got returned to Salem's Lot. There was a remake of it, a mm. smaller one. Um, I'm thinking that was a TV one too. I believe it was. And but it didn't capture the fear that Hooper brought to it. No, no, not at all. I so mean, this, yeah, it's it's really worth your time to check out because then the next one mm-hmm. that comes up on the list and one we recently were able to rewatch here mm-hmm. is uh, 1981's The Fun House. That is such a weird, like, hey, carnival movie. And that. another one that took me a while to get to uh, based on the VHS cover. That weird jack-in-the-box monster. The little clown with mm-hmm. the hatchet. Yeah. You know, I noticed something between... Okay, because we're going to talk about Poltergeist next. But mm-hmm. between between Poltergeist and Funhouse, I think that Toby Hooper is really partly responsible for the fear of clowns people have now. So many ch- ch- children mm-hmm. owe him a giant middle finger. <laughs> Absolutely. Based on... Yeah, but you, know, you nailed it because yeah. that is prevalent as all hell mm-hmm. between these two but also tonally though they're completely different films absolutely because one is a pg film another one is a hard r mm-hmm. and this one it was really interesting rewatching because it, it does open with a like a, a, a psycho homage in terms of the shower scene even though yeah exactly even a almost a, a john carpentery too with the mask putting on and just the shenanigans and then it just went on into something darker you know it, well it <laughs> definitely gets darker and the funhouse is another one that i think that kind of falls between the cracks for a lot of people but i know it's also had a pretty big resurgence here mm-hmm. and i think largely in part two I know um, Scream Factory put out a Blu-ray recently of the Funhouse. Yeah. And so it's definitely one that I think more people are seeking out and seeing. And ultimately, it's a really interesting film because any kind of film that's centered around the carnival, um, think like... You, Something wicked this way comes. You instantly have a feeling of dread because absolutely, like, we kind of joked about it like carny justice. Mm-hmm. But again, talking about the world that exists outside your own, a world that comes to your town, the carnies that has their own set of rules, and God forbid those two worlds collide. Right? <laughs> shit don't work that well. That's oil and vinegar, right? You know. Mm-hmm. It's, so what's I think that works really well in terms of the tension between the two, but also you get some genuine, I dare I say, again, kind of care. For the carnies. Yeah, and you definitely get also, um, there's there's also, the one thing I noticed about his, especially his early work, it's always about family. Oh, yes. And on both sides of the, the coin, you have the fucked up family, and then yeah, I guess you'd have the 
quote unquote normal family, but it's still all about when those two meet. And this, like you said, they, the carnies, they have their own set of rules. They have their own set of justice. And you do feel pathos at sometimes, at some points for some of the yes, carnies. Again, it's not hit you over the head with it, but it's just subtle enough that you go, you identify it. And I think, again, there's some care involved with that. Mm-hmm. I think that's I think that's done on purpose by Hooper. Yeah. And another thing I like about him coming up with, especially with this one, another theme that you notice for me is the use of lighting and definitely the atmosphere. And the lighting, especially like um, he started off with a lot of reds in Chainsaw and in Eaten Alive. And, but then in Salem's Lot and even in... Uh, Funhouse, he starts working more with the blues and the more blue hues on it. And then we're going to see that theme kind of keep going. Well, I think it's rad, though, is the fact that you go basically from the outsider's view of the Funhouse. And then when they go behind the scenes, that's when you get all of the, and we kind of talked about the Suspiria lighting, the Argento feel, Uh because it does feel otherworldly almost dreamlike you're in their world now you're in the fun house and the shit that works on the outside does not work on the inside (laughs) so you're at that mercy so yeah you're you're a victim it's that's a that's a scary feeling plus you have those creepy ass automatons all over the place those fuckers and kevin conway playing three roles basically all the barkers uh Mm -hmm. definitely has a presence to him he's one of those guys was it uh dustin was saying what he he would smell like bush beer and like (laughs) regret or something like that (laughs) but i mean he looked like a lived-in character yeah and that's what i love in terms of what hooper did was he would bring in these really good genre character actors and he would just make like you said there's care in the characters even the like the crazy ralphs in the movies well and honestly i the side characters in this mm-hmm. one especially the little creepy lady the that creepy played lady. the crazy ralph yeah when she was basically telling him you're all fucked but the fact how she would show up to scare just to scare she would hide she would like like hide and then like because the little kid who's basically the kid surrogate because mm-hmm. the first time you see it you're going to identify with him especially when you're you know when you're you know, again in elementary school watching this the first time yeah but if obviously when you rewatch it you know you're with the adults but he gets fucked with so much in that film yeah, that he it's does. it's kind of funny for the most part but there are some fantastic shots in here mm-hmm. especially when it shows everyone leaving the carnival the aerial shot on that that it's was fantastic so it was so beautiful and so scary because you knew some ill shit was about to go. Because there goes that's you, you're go you're not going with the normies to go back to your reality. You're <laughs> yeah. stuck with everyone else. So there's some really good stuff with that. The kills in itself are pretty good. But this also, when we started watching this, we kind of talked about um, Rob Zombie remaking the Halloween films. And he just it, no, nothing ever fit right with to me with the Carpenter aesthetic right. and Zombie. He would have been. Perfect. He would have been absolutely perfect. perfect. He would have been for ab- a funhouse remake. Most definitely. Or anything with because I think he has really has the Hooper aesthetics influence the in his shit stuff. Insanity, the weird yes. lighting, the he, aesthetics. Yeah, he's the he, crazy characters. But he, you know, zombie takes them to another level. Yeah. But you can, I think that's where the true injection is. I think so. I think you're hundred percent. And so on. I'd be interesting to see him do that rather than take on something Carpenter esque. Because you know what, I would definitely see Rob Zombie's eaten alive. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. I mean, that would be fantastic. Rob Zombie's Funhouse, which is basically House of a Thousand, a thousand corpses. corpses without Doctor Satan, which would make it even better because that's we won't. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> but um, I definitely Funhouse is definitely getting its its push. Um, in fact, um, friend of the podcast Patrick Bromley, Corpse Club, uh, at this movie, he was always a huge Hooper fan. In fact, in the Corpse Club, they had a little bingo thing that whenever he would mention Hooper, you know, was kind of their thing. <laughs> so when he passed, I knew that was going to be definitely tough on him. Uh, and Funhouse was one of his all-time favorites. So um, definitely, and that's what's interesting, just in terms of these filmmakers and the fandom, but the connections that then you get in between the fans. Yeah. And that's why we do these retrospectives. Just and again, shouting out to people that we know were affected. Obviously, uh-huh. the family of Toby Hooper. And those that knew him, you know, on a, on a personal basis, but those that but are those influenced were fans, and were fans. who love the what they put out. I mean, uh, Billy Idol, Billy Idol, and well, <laughs> you know, speaking of the stuff that he put out, and again, what I am pretty uh, at this point, ninety nine point nine percent sure I was exposed to, and exposed is probably the right term, because for a for a PG film in nineteen eighty two, yeah, to this day, this film still scares the shit out of me. A big summer blockbuster with big names behind it, and yeah, family friendly. Steven Spielberg loved scaring the shit out of kids back in early his early days. And I listen, we 
we let's get this one out front. There's always been the controversy. Whose film is this? The truly directed it's Spielberg or Hooper. There's actually there was an episode of I think it was Shockwave's podcast where a guy that he basically said one way. It's kind of a bummer. I just to me this is a collaboration, mm-hmm. and I, I agree. think it's why the collab and that's why I think this film works because it definitely takes the suburbs of Spielberg. And it turns into the madness of Hooper. And here comes Hooper, and yep. those Southern boys go, "Yeah, right. We come for your daughter, Chuck." Just <laughs> and that, and honestly, that's what you get with this film because this is a again. I grew up in the suburbs. I'm mm-hmm. very, I was very for you know, blah blah blah, middle class life, blah blah blah. But I identify, even being an only child, I identified what was going on with the family, and so that to me, what was the truly terrifying part? Because when you're at home. You're supposed to be safe. But when you're not safe <laughs> not, in home. Not when your home is on an Indian burial no, ground. God damn you, James Karen. <laughs> and I, I love the fact, too, that as a kid, I was exposed to James Karen for the first time. Right. Who I would, who I'd labor, just grow to love, you know. I love that that seed is there. But even the family, the Freelings, the freaky Freelings, <laughs> they feel like a family you knew or at least wanted to be part of. But then here comes Hooper and with his, <laughs> with his gritty and, you know... That is such a Hooper scene in On the pool. On a mountain of cocaine. Right? That The pool scene with the zombies is such a Hooper scene. It is... With the, the real skeletons? With the real skeletons. Just It's gritty. It's dirty. It's lit weird. It's all up in your face. That is Hooper right there. Between that and the maggot face. Yeah. Blah, 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 blah. Which, yep. you know whose hands those were? <laughs> Spielberg's. <laughs> I don't know if we can get away with this. Yes, be fine. We're gonna be fine. It's gonna be great. Let's do it. <laughs> Yeehaw! And honestly, everyone knows. You know, he was kind of fueled at that. Way. That's why I think a Stephen King Toby Hooper collaboration is so weird in terms mm-hmm. of the uh, the Peruvian marching powder that was going on at that time. It's like that scene in the heavy metal. No, oh, just for those two. I, I, fl- I direct better on this man. It's fine. <laughs> but you know, obviously, uh, I think the 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 characters, the way they feel real. Joe Beth Williams, who <laughs> go creeps the nostalgia here, but yeah. she was genuine. A uh, Heather O'Rourke, of course, is little Caroline. And I mean, how did how terrifying was it that oh, they're here? Oof! I'll tell you what, not as terrifying as Zelda fucking Rubenstein. Oh my god, she's a great character. She's fantastic, actor, you know, so. and you're introduced to all these people, and it's it's just again, and just the way it's shot, it's scary. You feel for the family. Mm-hmm. Um, I did this as a double feature with Ghostbusters, and we did some great little. Uh, I had some red slime shots for this one. Because obviously, when they come out from the other side, but just the, the genuine, the effects that were happening, like Ben Endland and all those guys, yes. with a combination of practical and then the ILM team, like it works so well. And it starts off so innocently and so slowly. It's, it's such a slow burn that when it finally turns on, you go from the chairs stacking themselves to like clowns, clowns in like Cosby Willows. It's like, <laughs> it's like horrible. <laughs> and it is. It's just a great combination of Hooper and Spielberg yeah. and again this it has three sequels there's the story of the poltergeist curse of course that goes yeah. along with it there is so much that goes along with this film but I don't think it works as well without Hooper there no even if Spielberg himself directed everything it would not be the same because the parts that work are to me is the, the the family but then the terror the dirty gritty horror aspect because if the family if the happy family isn't in actual super fucking peril it doesn't work and then who, it is a PG horror movie and what better person to put a family in peril than Hooper oh my god <laughs> that's his bread and butter Man. It truly is. Like, oh, you're all related to a Marilyn Chambers by any chance? Like, actually, that should have been one of the gravestones. That you, you forgot to move the bodies. Oh, goddamn! So no, it's one of my favorites. Um, it holds up to this day. Again, I when when they're looking back at each other when Joe Beth Williams is about to go into the the void and there's that look between her and Craig T. Nelson. Man, I I, I teared up. Uh, and this was just a few years ago, so to me, it still holds up, and it's probably the one that, if you're not familiar with Toby Hooper outside of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you're probably familiar with Poltergeist. Yes. At least you, at least you've heard of these. Polter- Absolutely, yeah. And if you haven't seen them, you've heard of Poltergeist. You, if you heard of Chainsaw. So again, in terms of a horror filmmaker going outside, working his way outside the horror genre into the popular consciousness, it doesn't happen too often. That's why I think he's one of the best. Uh, we talked about the Billy Idol Dancing with Myself video. And then, speaking of cocaine, he decided, he signed a... He, he, he paired his wagons <laughs> with a couple of producers. A cannon of cocaine. 
<laughs> he has his next three films here. My goodness. In He's terms of unhinged Hooper right here. And you get a variety of flavors of Hooper as well. And we are, of course, talking to the Canon trilogy. Mm-hmm. Now, we, we did an entire episode devoted to Life Force, which is the first, which came out in 1985. God. Mwah, just a wonderful movie. So I'm going to just throw this out here. If you took all of Matilda May's scene out of Life Force, uh-huh. would we still remember that movie as fondly? No pun intended. I think so. I do too. Okay. It's, I think, I think, let's say. I wanted to throw that out there initially because that's why so many people remember Life, Life Force. For, but it's so much more than that. It is. It's a great story, fantastic visuals. Great. Well, it's a chaotic story. <laughs> it's a great story of chaos, I should say. It's a great madness story. Uh, end of the world story, a sci-fi story, um, such cool visuals. Like for example, how um, the spaceship is very phallic, but all the doors are very coffiny. It's a very, very unique spin on the vampire mythos. And I really think that even without the Matilda May, I mean, don't get me wrong. Thank God there's Matilda May in there. But at the same time, it could stand on its own and be an awesome movie. I agree. I mean, the special effects, the Oh man, the when when he runs at him and then just bursts into the dust, um, the chaotic scene at the end where London's on fire. Uh, and again, there are so many different genres thrown into this film. It mm-hmm. becomes this crazy blender, and it's it's again it's Hooper unhinged yeah. because he had a pretty good amount of money to work with to the point they actually gave him additional money to go ahead and continue with the effect shots. There's even a romance story in it. I That's, mean, in the heart uh, of it, there's kind of a weird romance story. That, so. like, tr- goes beyond Space galaxies and, and shit, right? Yeah, yeah. But he also had, it was the, the producers, uh, Golem Globus, were very hands-off. Like, hey, you know, this is what now. That kind of came back to bite him a little, as we'll see with a little sequel here. But I think with Life Force, this is a film beyond Texas Chainsaw Massacre that I would introduce to someone, which I think is kind of weird, because it is so batshit crazy. It's bonkers. I mean... You have, like you said, sci-fi, horror, romance, and then in the horror you have vampires and zombies and top-notch effects, right? And Patrick Stewart make a show, and like all sorts of. <laughs> it's it becomes a meme of itself. You got to uh, host a thirty-five millimeter screening of that. So good, people were like, "I don't know what to make of this movie. It's just too much." And I'm like, "It's it's insane. It's so much there." The one of my favorite scenes is when she comes up covered in blood and then just in the helicopter. Yeah, and then just just disappears, and you're like, "That was so cool." It, yeah, it becomes the let's go ahead and do it because why not? Mm-hmm. And I'm glad he had these three films to do that because they are really distinctly different between the tone of the three. But I think Life Force, just in terms of the unhinged, taking a space vampire concept and giving it to a coked up Hooper and just have fun, man. It and is again, huge. It is, it is massive it on is scale and scope. It's hu- and it's probably yeah. the biggest one I think he's had to date. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's unfortunate that it has. And I don't want to say unfortunate it has ties to canon, but a, a canon does have I have a certain reputation to. Yeah, which I think it doesn't give the chance that it deserves. Mm-hmm. But to me, it's one of those. Check out our previous episode on it. We gave it a lot of love. Um, but then in 1986, interestingly enough, we go just in terms of something that is just just bonkers and chaos and very adult mm-hmm. to something totally on the flip side exactly this is probably the most family-friendly movie he has this is family-friendly some- hooper is this, a little weird this is weird this is like he wanted to make a 50s b movie his way this this seems like almost his most um I don't want to say personal, but it seems like this is definitely a love letter to his his growing up. And I would say much kind of like how John Carpenter was trying to pay homage to the thing from another world and the movies that he loved and then made the thing, mm-hmm. but made it completely on yeah. the flip side. I think the same way that yeah, Hooper was like, these are the films I really enjoyed growing up and I'm going to make my own because... When you have Louise Fletcher and Karen Black in your film and it's not campy, yeah, you're doing it wrong. And it's totally <laughs> it's a very campy feeling film. And I think also I it's that campy feeling though that turns a lot of people off. I think it does unfortunately because yeah. people are expecting they're expecting when chainsaw, you, they're expecting life force and they're getting this very while well, there's big things and big set pieces yes, and, and there's a lot some of big cool st- things going on in yeah, it. Yeah, but it's very small, very I, very nostalgic, but 
I don't know if people were ready for that type of nostalgia just yet. Well, it's in very the 80s, 50s. It's there very were, 50s via 80s. Well, and that's just the, the 50s nostalgia was huge in the 80s. Think back to the future, just mm-hmm. the, few, the year before that. I mean, it was huge. And so you had him paying homage to it. And it's it, it, it plays on the great body switch films. Yeah. And it's fun. It's um you've got actually and you know, what's interesting with this film is again you've got Karen Black in it. You've got Louise Fletcher. You and there's the I, what I always remember is the frog in the mouth. Yeah. Which that's, very very uh I call, I got a frog on the throat. <laughs> and then the alien and creature design. Those creatures were cool and scary and crangy. I'm telling so, you. So I know there's. We really probably should look to see the first appearance of Krang, whether through comics or the uh, cartoon, because yeah, the supreme bad guy in there is very. Shredder, Toby, I've got a big mound of coke over here. <laughs> you can imagine that, right? It's, exactly, just like Krang fucking shit up. And that's what it is actually. But it's a fun film. Uh, it's a. It feels good at the end. You have a happy. It's so it's. And I think once again, it's a canon curse yeah. type thing because if you definitely love those old B fifty movies like that, you will like this movie. This is definitely a B fun homage. Movie. It is. So it's interesting that it sandwiches. It's the meat between just a chaos sandwich, right? Exactly, just a batshit sandwich. Because the same year, and we've never really talked extensively about it, uh, but the Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part Two, <laughs> which get that dog will hunt. You and again, this is the first one in terms of the massacre series that I saw, and so this is what I just assumed everything in that universe was. Right, and I didn't. <laughs> nope. Yeah, no. Nope. And I, I had a. I, I mean, I remember the. It was on a VHS screening, um, and again, it was the uh, the the cover was the the Breakfast, the Breakfast Club. Club cover. And I, I picked up on that immediately, and I'm like, okay, this is bizarre. And it again was in the vein of the comedy horror feel. And the horror does hit hard on this, obviously, with Savini's gore and everything. Mm-hmm. And there's some crazy tension, but just the... the it's so goofy. <laughs> it's so fucking goofy. It's hard to get scared when it's so fucking goofy. And I, I dare say, like, I don't want to say it's like, what would you say is the most Toby Hooper of Toby Hooper films? I would say his, like, one that probably would scream, if I said, hey, this is probably what Toby Hooper is all about... Holy shit! I might have to go eat alive. Yeah. Okay, okay. But just because it's putting family in peril and weird aesthetics and odd characters and just the hallmark of yeah, what he does. Yeah, but as for his like biggest one and like the the grandiose one, I'd have to go Life Force. Life Force. Yeah, I would say, and I would, I mean, maybe make the argument of this one, but because we had the opportunity to see it recently with an audience, so on our last uh, Nerdoween marathon, we had. <laughs> we we people weren't ready. I don't... <laughs> no, they weren't. So we screened. We did three sequels. We did. We opened um, with Scream Two. We then did uh, Twenty Eight Weeks Later, mm-hmm. and we finished everything off with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part Two. <laughs> and I love this film because it elicits this, it elicits such a strong response either way. Right. You don't fall in between Mm-mm. with this film. Mm-mm. It's either, there's no like. It was okay. Yeah. You know? It was like, what the fuck was that? Or what the fuck was that? That was just that's that's the two responses. You the same response. And it just, was interesting because there were a lot of people in the audience that hadn't seen the film before. But they they knew it part one and that's what they were expecting and then nope. <sighs> it I, I don't I dare say the audience turned against the film. But there was a there was a strong negative reaction, yeah. and I think maybe a lot of it was based on the fact that a lot of them probably had seen the first one, and then we're going into this one because again, when you go from one to two, it's jarring. When you yeah. go two to one, it's jarring. Exactly because they are two totally different, and it's fucked up because Hooper one's a comedy. Well, no, Hooper originally thought the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre was a comedy <laughs> that we didn't get it. <laughs> That's one dark joke. Right? That's, one, that's like the kind of guy that tells like dead baby jokes in the corner and then like, well, you Why y'all laughing? It? Yeah, yeah that's that's the, the guy that can clear a room, you know, right. innovator of silence, if you will. <laughs> but the, and then you get to this film and it's just so over the top campy and crazy and the chaos. And you go from like Leatherface being truly terrifying in the first film where at that end, when his dance at the end, when he's going like, that's scary. Yeah. He's, he's, he's just, unhinged. He's, he's insane 12 years later you get the leatherface shimmy now by bill johnson which to me is still it's it's funny 
and it makes me laugh every goddamn time. Right. It's and you you again contrast and between Gunner and Bill and chainsaw sex. Oh my like, poor Caroline Williams yeah. in this film. You know, obviously, and again, it comes down to the abuse that these poor le- female leads have to take yeah. in a Texas massacre film. <laughs> Because there's that scene, as you mentioned, in the radio station where he's got the ice, he's sawing into the ice between her legs. And it's just, yeah. It's so overtly sexual and nasty. And again, we were kind of watching the audience reaction and they were like, no, it's. They're like, what What the fuck? And some what people like, we were like, this is awesome. Some and then there were a few of us on the side reacting like the uh, the guy watching Dennis Hopper going off on the chainsaw. Right, like, like yeah. Yeah, yeah, just like hopping up and down, shooting pistols in the air and shit. Uh, Dennis Hopper apparently <laughs> does not remember making this film. It kind of shows too, because he's off his also rocker. unhinged. Yeah, you know him and Hooper on the side were just—he probably had that same like Texas Ranger hat on and shit mm-hmm. while doing the coke. Um, but we mentioned Caroline Williams' stretch, fantastic. Yeah, uh, but Bill Mosley. Fucking chop top, man. Stealing the show, creating a... Creating an icon, creating just a character that's emulated and beloved and fucking chop top. Got that Inagata DeVita? Real far out, man. Just like... And apparently the whole thing was his, scratching the lid and eating. So again, adding elements to a character, making it just a fully fledged breathing... That yeah. is remembered this so many years later. And getting the little guy in the ass. That's it. So. That's fucking government, man. <laughs> and again, a film that in terms of the, the little underlying political themes going on, mm-hmm. the cannibalism, the consumerism, the consumption, um, big, big, big government, what have you. Yeah. They still that's still there so many years later he's, that he was still able to put it in there. people to the masses now. But apparently all the gore came about because when they sent the initial dailies back and Golem and Globus saw it, they're like, this is just a comedy. Like, where's where's this terror and shit? And so that's when they brought in Savini. And there's some great gore gags Ooh, in this the, film. The, the facing, uh, the the oh. whole uh, Chet's death. That ah. When when he puts the mask on her and she says, I think she goes like, it's wet. Yeah. Oh, it's so gross. It's so gross. Uh, but this is truly an unhinged movie. <laughs> the, the the cast is over the top. The movie is over the top. The gore is over the top. The sets are over the top. There's Texas nothing Playland. subtle yeah. in this no. film. No. And I think that's ultimately why people have a problem with it because it is so challenging and it's just it's like <laughs> it just keeps punching you. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. It's, it's Grandpa get the hammer. You know, and they recreate a lot of the stuff from the first film that, in and of itself, in the first film is crazy, dreadful. And it's because the first time you're seeing it's so weird. And here again, it's just... It's even weirder. You're like, what is going on? I'd like to think this is Toby Hooper's spinal tap because everything is just going to 11. Yeah, I definitely the canon trilogy is like, fuck it. Let's and go again, crazy. It, it falls as part of the canon trilogy. It's so, perfect. I mean, like when you get to craziness that gets... <laughs> let's be crazy together. You know? Okay, why not? And, that's, <laughs> and I'm glad they exist because they're probably the ones that he's most well known for, I think. Just... Not necessarily, but I think because it was canon, more people saw some of those. Yeah. I think outside of Poltergeist and outside of Chainsaw, canon trilogy. And even uh, Friends of the Podcast, Atomic Cotton, uh, Zach and Erica, it's a great little story that on one of their first dates, uh, Erica made him didn't make him watch but they watched texas chainsaw massacre as part of her little litmus test to make sure he was a keeper that's awesome flash forward so many years later perfect i know it's fantastic so now after the texas chainsaw massacre i don't want to say he went to director jail but he started doing a lot of tv for uh, tv work he did a lot of tv work he did some cool stuff he did amazing stories the the equalizer a couple of episodes of freddy's nightmares uh tales from the crypt mm-hmm um and then body bags, <laughs> which I love Everybody. the fact uh, we you can't go wrong with adding a little JC to the mix. Now mm-hmm. with body bags, did he direct? He directed one of the segments, correct? Uh huh. And he was also one of the morticians at the end. He was. He do, he was one of the morticians at the end. <laughs> he was the one that like, showing up with Tom Arnold. Uh huh. <laughs> no, body bags is one of those again that I'm glad that um, Scream Factory put out. So good, dude. It's a lot of fun. It's so good. And it's actually it's one of those times to see John Carpenter playing the Crypt Keeper character. 
and he looks like he's having a genuinely good time. He should do it more often. They need he, to make body bags too. I had a so, and that was, and actually the the anthologies themselves. And again, it's an anthology film that not a lot of people have seen. Unfortunately, because it's good, it's Which really is, good. Interestingly it's enough, weird. That, but yeah, it's that good. we've been yeah in terms of what we've been talking about recently. Uh, but again, in terms of the the collaborative process that he had with a lot of the people that that were big at the time, that he could work with Carpenter, mm-hmm. and the Carpenter was cool with working with yeah. him. There weren't a lot in terms of the kind of the egos that went back and forth. Now, obviously, I know in terms of between the studios, there were some issues, but between the directors, no, they're, they're like, always cool. They're all about horror. I mean, it all comes down to that. They make good movies, and they probably all enjoy each other's movies. Like, yeah, man, that was really good what you did with Chainsaw. You know? <laughs> well, and speaking of the cocaine collaboration, it brings us to a 1995's The Mangler mm-hmm. built around, <laughs> and it was really funny because I remember even like the trailers with this one. It was um like it was the trio of horror: Freddy Krueger, Stephen King, and, and Toby, Toby Hooper. Hooper. Yeah. <laughs> And then, and this is ultimately when maybe Stephen King had too much coke in him, just yeah. in terms of the concept behind this film. It, it's, I mean, it. I kind of enjoyed. There's some good I, gore in it. I enjoyed it. I saw it in the theater. Did I, you see I this did, one in the theater? I did see it in the theater. It was one of those like, oh, cool horror movies out. Cool, sold. So I saw it in the theater, and I'm like, yeah, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. So I mean, so you didn't. So I. That's even better than the fact that you didn't walk away hating. It's like, oh, that was fucking fun. Yeah, I was because like, the concept is so weird. Yeah, but only from of, coked out Stephen King would think of a, a man eating laundry press that's possessed by the devil and shit. Right, right. right. That then can shake. It's yeah, no. And the fact that you got Robert England doing this really like theatrical over the top. Uh huh. I say we need to keep on on in impression. You know. Now can you now see? <laughs> I can imagine Freddie Bonaventure. <laughs> you got Hooper over there, just like, come on, that, I know Southern. That's not Southern. Come on, boy. <laughs> come on, man. You got to do a little more. Get a little more twang in you. A little more twang. <laughs> <laughs> but built around the gore, and that's the other thing. Just in terms of a lot of the the Toby Hooper films, beyond really part Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part Two and The Mangler, a lot of his films weren't really built around gore. Even Life Force isn't gory as much as it is more it's just kind of dusty. In your face. Yeah, it's very dusty. Very, <laughs> you know? I mean, gory is like, except for when they, she turns into a big pile of blood. But I mean, right. like, not a lot of like, blah! No, not at all. And so that's what's interesting with this film. There's, it kind of contrasts with a lot of his work in terms of the over-the-top gore. Because that one is and is built around a lot of the gore gags. Which I don't mind, especially in the mid-90s. That wasn't existing as much. Right. You wanted some gore in the 90s. And I think ultimately that's why it kind of got lost in the shuffle because at that point, 90, what was that, 95 when that came out? Mm-hmm. Right before Scream and then that whole slasher resurgence. And then everything became PG 13 again. And it's a different like, kind of PG 13. So again, he went back and started doing some uh, TV. TV work. Then he came back, he did Crocodile, which was a directed TV. Um. And I would argue we probably didn't have anything major up until, not necessarily major, but in terms of something that we're familiar with. Toolbox Murders was yep. tight. Yep. Toolbox Murders was a cool movie. I enjoyed that. It had the girl from May. Yeah. Ah, um, oh, goodness. Oh, my God. What's her name? Damn it. Oh, uh, this is going to kill me. Angela Bettis. Angela there Bettis. Thank Angela you. Bettis. Everyone, nerds. Horror nerds. Come on. <laughs> Toolbox Murders was good because it had a lot of the aesthetics. One thing that a lot of the early Hooper had that a lot of the modern Hooper had modern Certainly. Hooper, was the claustrophobic feel. You didn't get so much. Now, you had some of it in Life Force in the main ship and when you're doing that. But after that, there wasn't a lot of claustrophobic feeling, like especially like in Chainsaw and Eaten Alive, even, even in Funhouse. There was always a lot oh, yeah. of that. Well, like, I'd, actually, I would say um, once they go into the into the spaceship in Invaders, I think that works. And then once they get into the, the fun house or not the, uh, the little area in Texas master, I think there's still some elements there's in there, still, but it's not, a, it's as, not as, as prevalent yeah. as it was in, it wasn't its own character as right. it was in Texas and, and Eaton and, but it comes back in toolbox murders because there's you definitely have that feeling of shit. I'm stuck in this apartment complex and I got to go in the vents and shit while some hammer face is coming to get me. I dug the shit out of this movie. It kind was, of a return to form, if you will. Mm-hmm. And it's good. good to know. Old, it was a good old slasher film. And even that was in 2004. Yeah. And so, I mean, goddamn, that's still that was what? 13. That's 13 years ago. To me, that still feels like yesterday. Right. Isn't that weird? That's crazy weird. So even then, after that, I think the last one that he did a couple episodes, I know of uh, Masters of Horror, Uh which I don't know. I've only I've seen The Carpenter and I've seen I've seen a few of those, but I've heard also a lot of hit and miss on that one, too. So So that's one reason I'm curious. I need to yeah check that mm -hmm. one. But the last one I know that he directed was a gin in 2013. And that one I have not yet checked out. 
But I mean, he was still working on and off. Yeah, I mean, to start your career, what in seventy? Let's see, he started making yeah, like early. I think it was like late sixties because he was doing some documentary work. Yeah, sixty seventy four was his first feature. Mm -hmm. So from seventy four to two thousand thirteen, that's an extensive body of work. That's a huge body of work. That is, and a lot of good stuff. Not not all just horror. Some of the TV episodes. Oh no, and that's just it in terms of looking at the body of work, and that's Mm -hmm. what we really have that opportunity now, just in terms of the so many variety of ways. Yeah. To break in, you know, to bring in media. So I think ultimately we're going to be able to check out those things now. I'm definitely going to be checking out the Masters of Horror episodes. Um, but yeah, no, he is a body of work that is influenced, will continue to influence. Absolutely. And it, it's just, it's a shame that he was taken with us so young. Cause then, you know, in the 70s, you're in your 70s, that's still not that young. Yeah. Just in terms of that. But, um, you know, his work will forever be cherished, will be studied and i mean honestly the texas chainsaw massacre it's in the, the film registry if that's the if that's the only thing he ever did yeah he still won exactly you know just exactly. in terms of that so you know our again our th- uh, hearts thoughts go out to his family and friends um the people that he inspired the fandom and so forth and again mm-hmm. it's a shame we lost another one but let's celebrate by you know watching and championing their work the saw's family the saw's family indeed so until next time gang uh, this is greg d i'm genius McGee, and we will see you in your dreams Thank you.